0: The motivation to serve people as opposed to serving God is key here and it will give you a clearer perspective on other people's needs as well as the importance of meeting those needs when we can. You'll like yourself more when you start looking at the things that you now associate with church on a more humanist level and you're likely to find more people being drawn to you and wanting to spend time with you and make community with you as well. Remove faith from the equation, and you had many people in that church who had similar personalities, similar worldviews, similar philosophies about things like marriage and family and how things should be done, but the thing is that the religion did what it does. It created rifts, as it often does, and those rifts tore apart a community where love genuinely existed. Loving people for love's sake is a far better proposition, in my opinion, than loving them because a book tells you to.
1: Welcome to Unbound,
0: a podcast for new atheists
1: and lifetime atheists, ex evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers.
0: There is life after faith,
1: and life here is good. It's time for a new perspective
0: and a better conversation. I'm Spider,
1: and I'm Shell, and it's time to get unbound.
0: Well, welcome to episode. Fifty, everybody. The
1: big five zero.
0: Fifty episodes so far. I can't believe that we've been at this so long, and also that I haven't scratched the surface of things that there are to talk about with this. Plenty of
1: stuff to talk about. Oh,
0: there's plenty to talk about. The only problem that I've run into over the past few weeks is that the topics have been very heavy. Yeah. Very heavy. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem with a show like this: it's very difficult coming up with positive topics, positive things to say, because there's really nothing that's positive about this religion and what it does to people. So it's difficult coming up with a positive spin on certain things. And even as I was putting tonight's episode together, it occurred to me, yeah, this is a more positive message, but there are still warnings. Yeah, And there are still red flags that I need to bring up. And it kind of puts a damper on the whole, let's do a positive episode thing. But I'm more concerned with the truth than I am with positivity. And the truth is that there are good eggs in this thing called evangelical Christianity. And I've come across quite a few of them myself. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk tonight about some of those people Mm -hmm. and some of the things that kind of shaped me and also helped guard against this whole loss of empathy thing that we've talked about. Yeah. There are people out there that do this right. I do wish that they had other and better motivations, but right. that's them. And they did have positive influences on me. And I know that you've got a couple of stories that you want to talk about too.
1: Um, I have a few. Um, not very many because I don't have the variety of memories that Spider does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I've done more, I've put it out there a little bit more, so I've had a little bit more exposure to this. And yeah, there are some good people out there. Oh, by the way, I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. So in case you haven't surmised by now, tonight we're going to be telling some of those stories. And I wanna start by just making a couple of things clear. There are, in fact, people out there who do interpret Christianity from the perspective of love and community. And tonight we wanted to lift a little bit of the weight off the subject matter because it's been weeks worth of Donald Trump and storming the Capitol and all of the really hideous things that Christians do on a daily basis. So what about the good things? What about those things that they do selflessly and just for the purpose of lifting other people up? Now, of course, they're doing it in the name of their God, but... You know there are worse things. In certain instances, I think there are worse reasons for wanting to do things for people. There are much more selfish and self-serving reasons than that it would please their God. So again, we're going to give the flip side of that a little bit too, but I want to try and keep this kind of on a positive level because I think it is very, very important that we remember that the good ones are out there. We're going to share some of those stories about the people who were part of our lives way back when mm-hmm. and how their faith motivated them to really be their best selves and approach other people from what is classically referred to as a quote-unquote christ-like perspective right. you see there are plenty out there that take the love message of the gospel and run mm-hmm. with it too mm-hmm. i've brought this up before i have brought up some of the experiences that i had in this place before but my earliest exposure to anything evangelical actually happened a lot earlier than i give my brain credit for because i always equate it with my first week at word of life when i was 13 because that's when it was really all laid out in front of me and i was given the gospel message in a way that was packaged to sell let's put it that way the people who were in this particular church that i'm going to talk about in a minute really weren't into the whole package the gospel to sell thing but they also kind of knew where each other were at when they formed this church i don't know how interested they were in bringing in outsiders but they were definitely welcoming there were people who weren't part of this core group that wandered into their midst over time and there was no real exclusionism everybody was welcome the name of this place, I, I can say it out loud because it's so, so far defunct at this point that it really doesn't matter. Right. It's just part of my personal history. When I was, I, I have to say it had to be like seven or eight years old, my mother got involved with a movement called Tres Dias. And if you want to pronounce that the right way, then you would call it Tres Dias. It's the Spanish phrase for three days is what it means. Logically, it was more like four because the weekend began on Thursday afternoon and went until Sunday. So uh, three days plus, basically. But logically, I think it was three days worth of content. This was a large and very cohesive group of people in the Hudson Valley area in New York and still is. I just checked out their website a couple of days ago. It's gone through what appear to be certain changes. I think that there's a little bit more of an emphasis now on the training aspect of working on teams and what the various roles are, but I think that we free formed it pretty well back in the day too. I was a big part of the team version of this that was called Vida Nueva, which I've also brought up here before. And I did a bunch of those weekends. It was the youth weekend. They segregated them, boys and girls. So the weekends that I worked on were all boys weekends. And it started like literally months after I made, this is the way that they describe it, when you make your weekends. So I made my first VN when I was 16 and long before my 17th birthday, I was already doing teams and continued to work with this movement for quite a while. But Tres Dias was the precursor to this. Before there was VN, there was Tres Dias. And I was always super, super impressed with the way that people in this community interacted and the way that they managed putting these weekends on. The way that it worked was that they had a board who would choose directors for the weekends that were going to happen Throughout the year, I don't know why I'm talking in past tense because they still do this, but for me, it's very past tense. So that's the way that my head processes it. So they have a board that decides who's going to run all of these weekends as directors, and then it's up to the directors to fill their teams. So both of these weekends, I believe, have a progression of something like 15 talks. And it sounds like a lot until you realize that you're getting like five in a day. And they vary in length. Like there are some that are only 10 minutes long. And then there are some that they allocate half an hour for. But it's not the bulk of the day. It's what the weekend focuses on or is centered on. But it's not this all-encompassing thing where you're just sitting there all day long and listening to people drone on. There are talks and then there are activities that reinforce the messaging and the talk. A lot of times that revolved around posters. We didn't do posters for every talk, but we did posters for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that it helped, especially with teenage boys. I think that that really helped to get them to get their feelings out on paper a little bit more. And that was what the whole point of it was. A little bit easier to draw a picture than to ask them to write like an essay, (laughs) which why would you want to go away on a retreat and write essays anyway? Right. So. The way that they did it, there were a bunch of activities between the talks that related back to the things that were discussed in the talk. And sometimes that was a poster, sometimes that was a different activity where we would go to a different part of the facility and we would do something specific that reinforced what the talk was about. And both VN and TresDias were pretty much the same in that regard and did a lot of things the same way. So by the time I actually made my Tres Dias, as a young adult, I had all kinds of exposure so far to the way that they did things. And it's also worth noting that when I made my Tres Dias, I was in kind of a vulnerable spot because it was literally a couple of months after I left Mission Impossible. And it was difficult for a couple of reasons, not the least of which being that there were a couple of guys from that church that were on the weekend. And in true Tresdia's style, these were also members of the congregation that had a little bit more of a head on their shoulders. And they made it a lot easier for me. They knew what I had been through and had reached out to me during the weekend. And that just sort of solidified my opinion of the whole thing. Not that I didn't have a good opinion of it already because I had been so involved, but it solidified this part of it, the whole Tres Diaz part, because there were differences. And I really didn't know exactly what to expect from that kind of a setting where we're all grownups in the room, Mm -hmm. because it's easier when you're working with teenagers. And I know, given what I do for work outside of this, (laughs) for me to say it's easier to work with teenagers, that's saying something, because it's not always easy to work with that age group. But in the structure of that setting, there was just something about it. I never really saw any major conflicts. No one ever asked to leave, and they were told that they could. They made it very, very clear at the beginning of these weekends that they were there voluntarily and that they were free to go if anything made them uncomfortable or anything like that. There was a little bit of a spiel about that at the beginning. And I never saw anything bad, even with some of the kids that we knew coming in were you know discipline cases in school or whatever. We never saw that crop up right. on a VN. It was really, really well-paced. And the atmosphere that was set up from the very beginning was conducive to introspection and thinking about your own life and your own decisions and all of that um, with a heaping helping of guilt peppered in because that's Christianity. <laughs> but at the same time, it provided a safe space, and I don't think girls have as much of a problem with this as boys do. It provided a safe space for boys to let their emotions and their thoughts kind of share the floor a little bit. So I did a lot of these weekends. The first one that I did had a very big impact on me. I was a little bit hesitant about it because I had been taught in my AG circles that ecumenical groups were bad news. Mostly because you might hear something that you won't hear from an AG pulpit and you might agree with it. So they didn't like it very much when we strayed away from the fold in that way. But the person who sponsored me, and that's another thing, everyone who goes on a weekend for the first time, you're called a candidate and you have what's called a sponsor. And that's basically just the person that invited you to go. And that system is in place because of the evangelistic aspect of this where you're supposed to spread the word and you're supposed to get more people involved. But it wasn't like a multi-level marketing kind of thing. No. There was there was no pushing me into this. But I had seen a bunch of my friends go, but I had gotten a little bit too heavily indoctrinated about ecumenical groups. Mm. And when it came my turn to go, I surprised a good number of my friends and was kind of hesitant. It's like, oh, you know, that worked for you. I don't think that this is something that I should really be getting involved in. Well, my sponsor was the mother of one of my friends who was not from my high school, not even from my youth group, but I had known him basically through other circles in the community, other other Christian circles in the community. And then he started dating my bestie. So I got to know him real well at that point because he was far more present at that point mm-hmm. and his mother and my mother were friends and one night I get this phone call about going on this weekend and of course I'm still a little bit resistant and she said and one of the first things that I, that I told her is like I don't like the secrecy aspect of this because people don't want to talk about what goes on on the weekend and she's like well there's nothing crazy or cult like or anything like that that happens and even though things are supposed to be a surprise and a pleasant surprise. I will answer any question you have about this, about what happens during the weekend. If It will make you more comfortable going and I can send you there with the understanding that you don't spoil it for anybody else. I'll answer any questions that you have. And I don't think that I took it terribly far at that point. I asked a few questions. I got a little bit more comfortable with it. I saw what the benefits were. I saw the effects on my friends that had done this weekend. So I decided that I was going to give it a go. And I got so enthused by it that I was literally doing weekends like every six months yeah. for a while there. Mm-hmm. I was involved in these, uh, in these teams. And even to the point where when I was in college, three years in a row in college, I did one weekend where I was actually traveling for team meetings. I was traveling from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania to wherever the venue was in New York, that the meeting was happening sometimes i would stay over and just crash at my mother's and then go back to school the next day sometimes i would just drive back at night and i could skirt curfew because i was working on this retreat and i got a note from the director i showed that to security and then for the next like eight weeks just coming back at like two o'clock in the morning hi i felt like hot shit because i was driving onto campus late and not getting in trouble yeah right. Because that was the environment that we were in, you know. Then they start off by telling you that they want to treat you like adults, and then tell you about the eleven o'clock curfew. So, mm-hmm. but you know, I've already done two episodes on Valley Farce. I don't like calling it Valley Forge. Let's call it Valley Farce. That's what it was. It was. It was. That's what it was. It was a complete and total farce. But back on subject, Tres DS and VN were loaded. Loaded with what you would call the good eggs. And I never had any run-ins with anyone in that community myself either. It was smooth sailing from beginning to end, putting each weekend together. There were, you know, a few conflicting views here and there with some of the talks. But it wasn't this thing that drove rifts in between people. If you heard something that you didn't like, you had the opportunity to address it. And then it was still up to the presenter, whether or not they were going to change a word or two here and there, or an idea here and there. The only stipulation was that it couldn't go counter to basic Christian doctrine. So like we had one instance where we had one of our younger team members who came out with something about, you know, I think even Jesus might've sinned once in a while. And that raised some eyebrows. And we kind of had to put a stop to that and say, look, this is one of those instances where we cannot have you saying that because the idea of Christ being sinless, it kind of permeates pretty much every group that's going to be involved in this. (laughs) So you can have your own opinion on this. We found out later that he had a lot of Jehovah's Witness influence. So that's where that came from. Um, But we had to tell him that that part of it, you know, just take that line out. The rest of the talk is great, but we can't have that. Right. And then he said it anyway. So, you know, we, we we were kind of putting out fires for a little while there yeah. because he decided to pull a Jim Morrison yeah. and say, okay, that's no problem. We won't say higher and then get on Ed Sullivan and sing the song any damn way he wants. And yep. that was kind of what happened here because I guess this was something that this kid believed a little bit more strongly. Yeah. So he kind of went rogue with it and we had to put out a fire or two. Yeah. But it was, it was, I mean... In the entire time that I was involved in that movement, that is the biggest moment of tension that I can remember. (laughs) Everything was very cohesive. Everybody really liked each other. And I skipped ahead because I wanted to talk about Vienna and Tres Dias a little bit later because I led with Open Door Chapel. I guess that lays a little bit better of a foundation for the rest of the story about that church because now you know a little bit more about the people and what we did and what the structure of things was. Very ecumenical, a lot of mainline Protestant religions that were represented there. Not a lot of Catholics, although there were a few, but the Catholic church had their own set of retreats that were like this. Tres Dias was actually based off of a Catholic weekend called Curcio, which when you literally translate it, means brief course. And it was subtitled A Brief Course in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit longer, started on Thursday instead of Friday. The VN version was only Friday night to Sunday afternoon. We got an entire extra day with Tres Dias. So that was the key difference there. But the Catholic Church had Curcio, and then for the kids, they had Tech or Teens Encounter Christ, which was almost the mirror version of VN with Mary thrown in. I mean, yes. that, that was pretty much it. <laughs> There were words about mary but most of the talks were still the same because i had to do this retreat for my confirmation like a couple of years earlier so when i arrived at vienna and, and when my sponsor started talking about it i'm like this all sounds very familiar well it should you've already been through it yeah. and i figured that out kind of in short form like the first night i could tell that the talks a lot of them were the same and the things that we were doing a lot of that was the same And then as the weekend progressed, it was just memory after memory after memory. So that for me was, uh, it was good because it helped me get comfortable with it very quickly. And I got very excited about working with it because I kind of wanted to do a little bit with the Catholic version and there were opportunities for that, but nothing ever solidified and I still don't know why, but I was interested in working with the Catholic church Right. Because I thought that the weekend was awesome, and I thought that it would be fun to be part of the teams that put these on for the confirmation candidates. But right. uh, it, again, it just it never came together. But as all this relates to chapel, this place went so far as to even use the Tresdia songbook, right, as their hymnal. Basically, it was very folksy. First time, well, not the first time. Then they had guitars. Yes and other musical instruments, tambourines and whatnot. And actually it was a point of relatability right. for me because the Catholic church that my grandmother still insisted that I go to when my mother started doing this had a folk group right. that played among other things like Beatles tunes. Yes. Yeah. We would sing Let It Be mm-hmm. quite a bit. And then there were other folk standards that was... were not necessarily Christian but had positive messages and actually fit in certain parts of the mass and they sung certain parts of the mass, which I thought was pretty neat too. Yeah. So when I showed up there, the only difference was that it was louder
1: yeah, and
0: that they sang more songs and they sang songs that I didn't know. But I already kind of had a toe in yeah. because of where we went to church for the Catholic mass. Yeah. And over time, it kind of, flip-flopped a little bit where this Sunday I would go with my mother to chapel and next Sunday I would go to mass because you know my grandmother was concerned for my soul and all of that if I didn't get my communion then you know my soul could be in jeopardy and all that craziness so we kept up with that for quite a while and you know that was that was at her insistence really and with all due respect my grandmother was basically raising me at that point so it behooved both of us my mother and me to Kind of humor her in this. Yeah. But I knew which I liked better. <laughs> I did really, really enjoy the atmosphere of chapel. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed being around the people that went to chapel. I thought that there were some of them that were kind of sort of a little weird because they were very, very evangelical and it wasn't something that I was quite used to. But even those people weren't overly preachy. I really didn't get the whole born-again thing hammered into me until I was 13 years old and on that island. Yeah. So I think that they also had a certain degree of respect for other people's kids. Because even when I was around these people outside of church, they never really tried to proselytize or indoctrinate me. They were real live-by-example kind of people. So there were moments where I saw their evangelicalness come out. Mm -hmm. But... I don't even think that it was in a bad or negative way. I think the worst thing was the time when that kid decided he was going to just drop trow and piss on me outside. And I told that story a few weeks ago and the reaction to that, you, you yes. remember now what I'm talking I about. Okay. Talking about. <laughs> All right. So the reaction to that I thought was really, really overly evangelical where I was told that I had to forgive this kid. So In our episode about forgiveness, I go into this story in a lot more depth, but that was one of the, what I would call extreme examples of evangelicalness that I saw from any of those people. And those moments were very few and far between. When I was being babysat by some of these people and I wound up being left with a couple of the families in that church at various times. My mother was going to school full time. She was working full time. Sometimes my grandmother just was not available or whatever the issues were, because I practically lived at my grandmother's house. So whatever stood in the way of me being there put me in certain of these people's homes from time to time. And the only things that I remember are warmth and welcome and being, I, I mean, the most evangelical thing that I saw was the way that they prayed over their food. I mean, we said grace in our house too, but it was very Catholic grace. It was very liturgical grace. And these people were much more freeform with it, which I thought was a little strange, but didn't bother me that much. So there were several families in particular that really stepped up when my mother was having difficulties and they saw to it that I was taken care of. One in particular who understood the situation at home where there was no father figure. There was no there was no reliable male role model because my grandfather came home from World War II with such severe PTSD that he barely knew himself anymore. Mm-hmm. And I mean I can remember watching him basically just vegetate on that couch yeah. and read the paper and lip read along with the paper. And then he would watch the news and everything was so regimented. The way that he did things, even right down to some of the meal planning, was very regimented. We had a lot of the same things at the same times. And there were just a few very specific things that he enjoyed. So they were on the table a lot because what else was gonna make him happy? Mm. That was my grandfather. And so there really was no male role model in the picture, and then one person in this church, now keep in mind that he had his own kids, and he was in the process of adopting a kid who was coming from a pretty rough home existence. This child had been taken away from the parents for various reasons, not the least of which being that they were being um, physically abusive to him, and that's all I'm gonna say about that. I mean, I'm talking about things that even in my angriest moments, it would never have entered my mind to do to my child. Right. But he was in the middle of that and still figured out a way to basically big brother me. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time at his house. He did provide me with one of the better male role models that I had in my life. There would be others along the way. but this is one person that I remember very, very, very well. And I think we're okay with first names. His name was Eric. He is no longer with us. He's been gone for quite a while. I want to say it's got to be at least 20 years at this point, probably more. I'm guessing it's probably a little bit more because I was in school when he died and couldn't make it to the funeral. I don't remember what the circumstances were, whether it was too close to finals or there was something else going on. And I just couldn't make it there, but they had recorded his memorial service and I got a chance to listen and learn just the sheer number of lives that this guy touched and the things that he did for people. And even in the midst of a difficult situation where he was trying to normalize a good home life for a kid who had never known it, he still took the time to give me some attention and make sure that I didn't wind up going down the same path that this kid did. Not that my mother was technically abusive or at least not perpetually abusive. There were moments, there were things that happened, but it wasn't anything like what this other kid went through, nothing like that. But. He saw that there was a little bit of a crisis there, that I needed some direction, that I needed someone to basically teach me what a man was. And he did a fantastic job of that. And I still think about things that we did and things that he said and the gentleness and the kindness in his and It's still to this day, it's so unfair. The way that he left this world, it was so unfair. He had struggled with cancer several times yeah. and eventually it just beat him. Mm. And that's one situation where at the same time I find myself looking at that as an example of how the religion can work, but also of just how completely full of shit it is. Because this person was a good person and he did good for other people. but. It was God's will that he died in this awful way. And it was so not what he deserved. It was so not fitting for the life that he lived. And so while at the same time, I look at him as one of the good eggs and I look at him as an example of how this can work, it also just sticks in my mind that this was kind of a shitty way for God to thank him. Yeah. You know, very, very shitty way. And there were several other families that were in that church that I remember with a lot of fondness. One lady in particular who was our Sunday school teacher. And I put in my notes, you will tell a couple of embarrassing <laughs> stories here. And There's at least this one that revolves around this lady, and I'm going to tell it. Yes. We're going to immortalize it. We're going to tell the world. I mean, she wouldn't let anyone in my life not know about this no. well into my teenage years. So I guess Pushing 50 years old myself, it's safe to tell this story. Yeah. So I've always liked the whole external stimulus thing when I'm trying to study or remember or focus on things. Even when I'm busy editing the episode, I usually have the TV on and running like a Star Wars movie or something so that I've got something going on in the background. So this has been my entire life. So at seven or eight years old, my mind is just going to these various songs. That i know and my mother went through kind of a country kick in the late 70s going into the early 80s she was kind of off on the country music a little bit but she also liked floyd and elo so you know it wasn't all bad. but there was a song yeah. that was very popular in the late 70s called rhinestone cowboy mm-hmm. and so since i'm hearing this song all the time this one particular sunday We're working on whatever the little crafty thing was that we were working on. I don't even remember what it was. But all I remember is that I started singing this one song (laughs) from the Tres Diaz songbook and singing it, you know, just the chorus over and over again. And then my brain just sort of (laughs) shifted to Rhinestone Cowboy. And I'm sitting there singing this wonderful song. And the way that she used to tell the story is... And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, what a beautiful child of God and how much he loves Jesus. And then all of a sudden, like a rhinestone cowboy. (laughs) You know, it embarrassed me when I was a kid, but you know, it's one of those memories you look back on and it was so endearing to this person and it made her smile and it made her laugh. And she did so much for me that being able to laugh about right. that once in a while seemed like a really, really small price to pay yeah. on my behalf for everything that I was given by this person because she was another one that stepped up with the babysitting and even a lot of overnights. There was one year in particular, I think it was my last year in junior high school slash middle school, whatever you want to call it, where there was an issue with the busing. yeah, And it took them a good week to get that situation straightened out. And in the meantime, I needed some place where I could stay and be picked up so I could go to school because my mother was always like, "I'm I, at that point, I would, I would assume given what she was doing at that point, she was either A, not home from work yet because she was working overnight or she was sleeping and needed to because she also had class. Right. So I would get dropped off at their house at night after dinner mm-hmm. and... I would sleep over there and then I could get the bus to get to school for that first week until they sorted that stuff out. Well, this was the (laughs) same person. This was the same family. Mm -hmm. And she and I wound up having some very deep conversations during those times when I was there and still not real preachy, not proselytizing but I got more of an idea of the things that she believed and it was one of those reinforcers that when I got to Word of Life, certain things just kind of clicked. Right. So it was that kind of situation. She never tried to lead me in a sinner's prayer or lead me in a direction where my mother and family may or may not have approved, but it was also her daughter that I followed to Word of Life the first time too. So she was involved, she actually presented that as something that I might enjoy and let me know that her daughter was going. She made sure that I knew her daughter was going. And that was kind of what shoved me out the door a little bit. But in terms of the time that I spent with her, no, she was she was not the type to be preachy. You knew what she believed. You, you always knew what she believed, but she didn't push it. And that was very, very standard for people who were part of Tres Dias. Very, very standard personality type. This movement did have a tendency to attract a certain personality
1: type. They wanted you to live it and not talk about it as much. Because, I mean, talking about it only does so much. It's, the proof is in the living.
0: Well, it's not even a feeling. They would say right there in the week, and one of the principles that they taught right. was to preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Right. And that's what they did. And they did it well. And they did it with sincerity. And the types of things that I'm talking about with the families that were in this church were very, very typical. They were very standard among the people who were in this movement. So it's one of the things that I still look back on endearingly. I wouldn't want to send my kid to a VN at this point just because of where we are. But it was always kind of a dream of mine to get him to experience that at least once. And then by the time he was the right age, we were well on our way out of this and it was not a priority anymore. So that was kind of the end of that little dream. But honestly, I think that if he had gone and gotten well enough indoctrinated, that dream could have turned into a nightmare around here as mom and dad evolve away Mm -hmm. from it. And it's like, but wait, you got me involved in this and now you're walking away. It's like my friend, the missionary, wait, you got me involved in this and now this is what you're doing? Well, you had your own choices to make and I seem to recall you saying that it was God that called you into this. Mm. I just sort of talked to you, <laughs> but you said that God called you into this. I wouldn't want to have to have that conversation with my son. Yeah. So I'm glad that I never had to. Mm-hmm. But the thing about uh, VN and Tristius is that they both taught me loads about community right. and what community is. There was very little in the way of cross indoctrination among the people that were there because there were a lot of different traditions that were represented, a lot of different denominations that were represented, but no infighting. In any other context, you wouldn't even know what most of these people's spiritual beliefs were because when we were together preparing meals and doing all the things that we would do as a community for the community that was putting on that weekend, there was nothing but unity. Yeah. There was nothing but a spirit of unity. And I never saw anyone even get into an argument during one of these things where you just got people coming together to prepare a meal. Yeah. And they're just going to spend a few hours together and they're going to do this. And they reinforced the idea of community with some of the things that they did as part of the weekend. Like with VN on Saturday night, they had what was called the hoot yes. short for hoot nanny. <laughs> and That was when the greater community came together to support the kids who were on the weekend. The boys weekends had it, the girls weekends had it. And usually it's one of those things where the sponsor is supposed to be there. You're not supposed to sponsor if you can't come to the Hoot. So your sponsor was there. If your parents were involved with with Tres Dias, they were there. And if they weren't, they were invited and it was explained. So there was no exclusionism, whether they were part of the quote unquote community or not, they were invited and they were encouraged to be there. They were encouraged to take part in a part of the weekend known as Palanca, which was just a series of letters usually, or little favors like... Hershey's kisses and things like that for each of the tables. But there were two types there was personal palanca and there was general palanca. So the general palanca had to do with things like all the goodies on the break table. And the break table, whether it was Vienna or Tres Dias, was a big deal. It was something that everyone looked forward to. And everything that went on that table was considered palanca. And the word palanca is another Spanish word, it means lever. So it was supposed to give you leverage to be able to get through your weekend and get as much out of it as you could. Right. It was encouragement is right. what it was. So we even, from time to time, when we showed up to cook meals and serve meals, anyone who was underserved with the personal palanca, there was a list. Right. And we were encouraged to just write a letter to somebody on the weekend, whether we knew them or not. We were encouraged to write them a letter to make sure that they remained feeling like they were as involved with it as everybody else, and that they meant as much as everybody else. And so I wrote quite a few of those letters myself, not really long, just short little messages of encouragement, maybe two or three sentences, so that they would have something to open at the table when everybody else did. So on Vienna had the hoot. And on Tres Dias, there were two things that they did that were significant. On Sunday morning, you were brought down to the chapel and you were favored to something called Mananita. Now, what Mananita was, I did several of these for the women's weekends because they segregated men and women for Tres Diaz the same way that they did the teens for VN. So we would show up early, very early on Sunday morning. And when I say early, I was setting my alarm at 6.00 so that I could be at whatever the facility was by seven. And sometimes the facilities where they held the weekends were kind of far out there. So if I had to travel an hour, then I kind of had to get up a little bit earlier too. So after I had made my choice and I always went to the Hoots. Whether I was involved with the weekend or not, I was almost always at the Hoot for a VN weekend. I was pretty much present because I was that gung ho. For the Tres Dias weekends, after I had made my initial weekend, I would participate in Mañanita. And now that I've been talking about it for six minutes, Mañanita was where we would all assemble early and we would just march into the chapel where everyone had already been assembled and we would go right up into the altar area and we would just sing this song. And it was the same song at every Mañanita. And... We would hum the melody going in and then as soon as everybody was up there, we would sing the song through and then we would process out still humming. And it may not sound like much just hearing about it on a podcast, but it's a big deal when you experience it Mm -hmm. and you don't know that it's coming. You see, I knew it was coming only because my mother was involved in Tres and I had heard a lot of the terminology and I had watched her leave for Mananitas before. So I knew what this was and I knew when it was coming, but looking around the room, there were also plenty of guys that didn't. And it is a moving and touching part of that weekend. And oh, the other half of that is that the men sang to the women and the women sang to the men. So right here, smack dab in the middle of your weekend, if you're on a women's weekend, all of these men walk in and sing this song to you and walk out and it's made clear to them, not even in a guilting way, but just in a, this is how cohesive this community is way. It was explained to them that some of these people had traveled an hour or two hours or more just to do this and go home. Mm -hmm. And there was a certain impact to that. And... It was another one of those things that drove the concept of community home with me in that movement. The fact that we would get together and the community was responsible for everything. The weekends were not catered. We made the meals. We showed up to do all the special things for the people on the weekend so that it would enhance their experience of it. And getting up to do a Mañanita is one of the most selfless things that I can think of just to bring happiness into somebody else's life. So the way that this was set up it really does go counter to almost everything that we talk about on the show. Right. But there are issues and there are problems with everything related to evangelicalism and I'm going to get into a little bit of that in just a little while but I also wanted to give a little bit of credit where credit is due and episode 11 of this show is a very emotional one for me. It was an emotional one for me to put down because it dealt specifically with the one year that I spent in organized ministry. It was an episode called the impossible mission Mm -hmm. and it kind of sort of gives away the name of the church that we did this at without saying it in any specific terms. But I referred to the church as mission impossible because that was basically what they made my job there. They made it impossible. They made it impossible for me to show love and express community because they had this very toxic microculture going on there. But in the midst of that very toxic microculture, there were some very, very high quality people, not high quality Christians, high quality people. Two things, that I can remember very, very distinctly about that year. And, you know, you can listen to episode 11 and hear about a 10th of the bad stuff. Yeah, I never even scratched the surface and we went on for like an hour and 40 minutes. Okay. <laughs> but there were two things in particular that I remember really well. For starters, Shell and I got into a really, really bad accident yeah. in 93. We were barely married six months. Yeah. And we had our car totaled by some asshole in a Chevy truck who was driving drunk and plowed into our little Ford Escort at, according to the police report, about 75 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, I still, I mean, I, I have an idea of why and how we survived. I thought very, very quickly. I was able to get certain things in motion because I knew that we were going to get hit. And I think that my quick thinking and the fact that we were wearing seatbelts yeah. was most of the reason why we walked away from that. Mm-hmm. But when you looked at the state of that car, oh, yeah. you would never believe that two people literally walked out of the hospital the same night and we did. Yeah. So we did. it was bad. We had really just started at this church. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, that accident happened on what would become Liam's birthday. Which was interesting. It happened on October 29th, not only on the day, but around the same time that he was born, around six o'clock at night is when this happened. So that's kind of an interesting little parallel. It means nothing, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And we had been at this church at that point, all of September and then all of October. So almost exactly two months. And I was actually amazed. It wasn't a lot of them, but there were several people. From that church that called us and wanted to know if we were okay if we needed anything can we bring you some meals so you don't have to cook and all of that and me being the stubborn independent type that i was i was gracious but said no i think we're going to be fine in the meantime we both had like this insane case of whiplash yeah. and we're in a lot of pain honestly i didn't really feel like eating that much the, the week after that anyway no. so we were kind of in survival mode and, you know, having a bowl of cereal when it got really bad and that was about it, yeah. but the offers were made and they were legit offers. It wasn't like they were going to say they were going to do something and then not do it. There were people in that church that were proactive and were genuinely concerned about us mm-hmm. and made it clear that they were concerned about us. And it was kind of a false flag for me in the beginning yeah. because, you know, I, I honestly thought that things were going to be better there, but it wasn't long after that, that things really started falling apart with that project. But at that moment, I knew that there were people there that had substance and had character. And that will always mean something to me, especially if you listen to the episode and, and you learn what Shell and I went through that year. It, it'll be even more significant for me to say that there were people there that had substance and character because we didn't see a whole hell of a lot. We didn't see that from a whole lot of people in that place and it was a problem that trickled down from the leadership but that notwithstanding we had that and then there was one family in particular who were not very happy to see us go and even before like for months before they could see how badly we were struggling and they could see that we weren't being dealt a whole lot of love or respect from the people in that church so what did they do They turned around and started inviting us over for Sunday brunch after church. Like almost every week for a couple of months, we were in these people's house and they treated us with respect. They treated me like I was their kid's youth pastor, even though those people would never give me a title. This is another one of those examples where God kind of dealt them a fuck you because they lost one of their kids like several years after we were done with that place he had already been in one accident with an ATV that was reasonably serious. And I remember going over to see him while he was recovering from that. And just a couple of years later, you know, and I don't, I don't think for a second that he didn't learn a lesson from what he went through. What happened a couple of years later was still related to the same thing going over the memories in my head. I don't think that he could have avoided it. It was the same kind of freak accident that took Matthew away from me when we were 11 so it was just one of those things. But again, here's a family, a very cohesive, very close-knit, loving family who were among a very, very small number of people in that church yeah. that understood what love was. And this is the shit that happens to them. Yeah. It just absolutely boggles my mind how anyone looks at situations like that and with situations with our friend Eric just awful, horrible things happen to these people. And then you've got the evangelical side of this where, well, you know, God is trying to test you. He's trying to tell you something. He's trying to teach you something. Oh, bullshit. There are better ways. You're God. Come up with a better way than killing their fucking kid. You know what I mean? That's the type of thing that runs through my mind when I think about that family. It's like, they understood what love is. Your average evangelical does not. It's not their fault, but they don't. And here is a group of people, a very close-knit family, and they get it. And that's what happens to them. Mm. It's one of those things that I think about, or I should say thought. It's really kind of in the past at this point, the doubts that I had over leaving this thing called evangelical faith have long since dissipated. But whenever I used to have real heavy thoughts about whether or not I was doing the right thing, I thought about Eric and the way that he died. And I thought about this family from Mission Impossible and the calamity that befell them. And it's like, look, there's no loving God that would consider this just reward for the way that these people live their lives. There's no way. And so it kind of armored me. Against ever thinking that this could be a right thing or a good thing for me ever again. And you see what I'm talking about here? How even when you are trying to have a positive conversation, this is the shit that seeps in Yeah. because that's what this religion is. Yeah. And that's the God that these people serve. And it sucks. It really does. It sucks that so many people still believe this. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, before I get into the point counterpoint with this and start offering a few ways that you can do this right without the religion aspect. I know you had a story or two that you wanted to share.
1: Yeah, one of the best things about my religious life from the time I was a child was being in choir. That was my favorite thing to do. It's still something I miss terribly. Not being in a choir, it's something I miss. I miss singing with choral music that you would get especially in um, Episcopal Church, you would get a lot more of the four-part singing.
0: Yeah, Uh, I sang in some choirs too, and it was another one of those real feel-good kind of things. There was cohesiveness with it and the people that were involved in it. There was no infighting. We were just there to make some good music and do this for God and for the people in the congregation and especially in the Episcopal Church.
1: Yeah, I think it was better there because when I was in assemblies, it kinda got to be competitive. Yeah, and yeah. And that's not the point of choir. <laughs> the point of choir or chorus is to sing in concert with each other. Yeah. To listen to each other and to harmonize with each other, not vie for the one and only solo that is ever offered.
0: Yeah, yeah. Auto. Yeah, that's it. It's
1: like, you know, I've gotten the solo more than once. I've done a lot of stuff like that. But after a while, it just got to be too competitive, especially when I got into college. Yeah. It was very competitive. And I'm like, I don't feel like competing with people. I want to stand on my merits and not because I made friends with the right people or did the right things. Right. But there was always something more challenging, especially about when we were in Episcopal Church, because they were more liturgical, more classical, definitely more focused on the corporate part of choral singing. Right. Um, I used to want to be the soloist. In the Episcopal Church where I grew up, there was a woman who sang and she was like the cantor. She would sing the first part of the chant and the congregation would answer i used to want to do her job so much uh, because i was yeah. like that is that's that's what i want to do mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a competitive type of thing it was just that is so cool
0: i always loved making music too i was um uh, wor- i was a worship leader in a lot of the churches that we were in yeah. and i Wound up heading the music ministry in more than one of those churches because it was an area that was always like lacking. Yeah. So I would come in and, oh, look, talent. And I would be on that platform like every week right. because I could do it. And I figured God gave me these talents for a reason. I'm going to use them for this purpose. And I actually really enjoyed that. I enjoyed it more. Before all this covid craziness when I could just grab my guitar and go to the local bar and play the uh, open mic also Yeah,
1: that was
0: and I nice. actually actually I liked that better because there wasn't any kind of an agenda behind it right. It was just making some fun music for some drunk people And <laughs> and that was it and let me tell you drunk people are not difficult to entertain at no, all
1: not. Especially if you know Freebird.
0: Oh, yeah Oh, I mean, come on. Every single open mic I ever did, there was some asshole out there that started yelling Freebird. And once in a while, I would just start playing it. And I hate to admit this, but I would wait until someone who was really, really seriously pissed up drunk started yelling for Freebird. I didn't do it every single time. But if this person was particularly drunk and was screaming Freebird, I would start Playing it just so he would make an ass of himself in front of everybody and start cheering and yelling and all that. So that was that was one of my one of my major motivations, especially with that song. And I would never get more than like eight or twelve bars into it. It's like, okay, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. And then, you know, just sort of move on to something else. But music has always been a big thing for me too. And I'm gonna talk a little bit toward the end about that aspect of things because I know that it's a lot of what people enjoy, especially in Pentecostal churches where the music ministry, the worship services are very energetic and they're very uplifting. And we did an entire episode on this too, on the appeal of worship music that I think you should definitely check out if you haven't already. So I'm not going to really say a whole lot more about it than that. But there is a definite release of endorphins that happens when you're up there making music and people are enjoying it. And at least at the open mic, I was allowed to give myself some credit for it. Whereas when I'm the worship leader, I have to defer all of it to God. I can't keep any of that glory for myself. So with all due respect, you're the one making the music. You deserve to be proud of what you're doing, but you're not allowed in that Kind of a setting to be proud of it. So I think that that makes a decent segue into the second part of this where we talked about some of these things that are out there and the types of people that get involved in these activities. Well, you know, there are other ways. If you are coming out of this or you're on the fence about whether or not you want to be out because you are afraid that you will lose your sense of community, and that is the number one thing that people fear, leaving religion. It's not even a matter of hell. In most people's minds, it's not even that. It's a matter of losing those connections and losing their sense of community. So let's talk a little bit about how you can use your time better and serve people in a context that doesn't involve church. For starters, faith is not An essential part of community. Chapel was more of a social group, to be perfectly honest. It was comprised of people with shared interests and experiences, just like any meetup. When the experiment started falling apart, it basically put an end to a number of relationships and we're talking friendships, but we're also talking about marriages. There were people who wound up getting divorced over differences of opinion about where the church was going or had become depressed and, uh, and withdrawn because of things that were happening in the church. So there was havoc that was wreaked toward the end there. It was a situation where you had one spouse taking one side over another in certain matters yeah. and then forming factions and alliances. And this is how church splits happen. Yes. This is why there are so many denominations out there to begin with, well, yeah. because you get people who believe this and people who believe that. And then even though everything was great at the beginning, now they're like oil and water. And they never see eye to eye. And this is the type of thing that happens. So just like oil and water, they split. And that's the way that that works. We did not, my mother and I didn't see the end of chapel. We weren't there. We had moved on from that. I'm still not 100% certain what the timeline was there and why we had stopped going. I don't think that she stopped going over any of that stuff because it was really just starting to brew up a little bit. And maybe that was why she decided to leave. I don't know. I've never really talked to her about it. But I do know that it wasn't terribly long after, within a few years, maybe two, three years after we had stopped going there. Actually I kind of have a good idea of why we stopped going there and I'm not going to get into it because it involves people and things that they've experienced that I don't really want to get into. Suffice it to say, it was only another couple of years before the thing was completely done. And there were efforts made to revive it. They rebranded it a little bit along the way, and they did a couple of things to try and keep it going. And in the end, it was just doomed. And the people who were most heavily involved with it knew that there was no place else for this to go. Mm -hmm. And it just eventually fell apart. But here's the thing. I firmly believe that if this group of people had been a secular group that came together under the same basic conditions that being wanting to have a cohesive community among people that were like-minded and saw the world the same way i think that it would have lasted remove faith from the equation and you had many many people in that church who had similar personalities similar world views Similar philosophies about things like marriage and family and how things should be done. But the thing is that the religion did what it does. It created rifts as it often does. And those rifts tore apart a community where love genuinely existed. And that's the most sad part about that entire story is that love lived there for a long time. But this religion would not let it survive because that's what it does. It takes love and twists it into hate, and eventually this is the type of thing that happens. Since light and darkness can't fill the same space, the underlying message of Christianity, one wherein love is hate and hate is love, was destined from the beginning to not allow love to keep manifesting or remain part of the equation with that church. Division and animosity crept in over time, and another vibrant, meaningful community with really high quality people was laid waste in the name of opposing beliefs and religious viewpoints. So that's what happened. There were differences of opinion on how to do this, how to do that, what communion was, how communion should be served, who should be serving communion. There were all kinds of things, all kinds of real dogmatic BS that cropped up in the waning days of that church. But here's the thing, you have to know, that when you bring a group of people into a single community who all have different beliefs, and yes, they were all Christians, but we already know how many flavors of that there are out there. So they come from this ecumenical community, and now they wanna make one single community out of that. It's destined to fail. You have all these people with different beliefs, practices, and traditions when it comes to their faith, and that breeds problems. You have to know that problems are gonna crop up eventually in that kind of a setting. Ecumenical groups do work in certain settings and under certain conditions, but going full hippie and starting your own church and having no fucking clue how to run a church so that you can have your own private Jesus movement love fest was never going to work. And that's what they tried to do with this church. And it was sad because it just stripped love completely from the equation by the end. I understand I really do understand where the excitement and exuberance comes from and came from with this group because it was one of those things where, you know, one or two people suggested maybe we should just have our own church because part of the, part of the Tres Dias experience is a thing called sequelas. And what sequelas are, are community wide events, usually about once a month where people get together. and you know they they just it, it's not even reminiscing about the weekend it's supposed to be about applying the things that you learned on the weekend and a lot of times there was a talk and we would do a poster and you know it would be just like the weekend but it was very truncated and it, it revolved around maybe one or two things and activities and that was it and i think what wound up happening is that there were a bunch of people that were going to these sequelas and decided they wanted to see each other more than once a month and that's where this church came from yeah. You know, without any clue in hell how to organize a church and what it should look like and how it should be run and governed and all of that stuff, they just dove in with both feet and said, we're going to do this. And with that comes an interesting little phenomenon that is called new relationship energy. Now, in terms of romantic couples, this is what you would call the honeymoon period of the relationship where you're just completely and totally in love and head over heels about everything about each other. And this can happen in settings that are not romantic also. So these people got together and they decided to do this. And the NREs just went through the roof and it was a love fest for a while. It was a love fest and there was a real intensity to it. There is an intensity to this new love aspect of things, the new relationship That you are forming as a group as you embark on this thing can be the same as falling in love. At least in your brain, the chemicals involved and the thought processes involved can be very much the same. And it's the same thing when a lot of people get quote unquote saved. They go through this honeymoon period where they've got this new relationship with Jesus and they're feeling the NREs like crazy. I keep pluralizing it, you can make it singular or plural, new relation energy or new relationship emotions, I've heard it both ways. So yeah, it's the same thing as when you get saved and you're so gung-ho. Well, these people were very gung-ho about starting this church, but they didn't know what the hell they were doing. And they didn't look far enough down the line to understand that all relationships also settle into a routine. And as soon as it started feeling more routine, And the honeymoon period was over. That's when you started figuring out who thought what. And they started getting more vocal about it. And discussions turned into arguments. Arguments turned into fights. Fights turned into divorces and Mm. whatever else. And kaboom. And that was the end of it. That's the type of thing that can happen when you don't think more than a few months down the line. When you convince yourself that this is something that God wants and you get so emotionally involved with it that you're not thinking about what you're doing anymore there's a big difference between emotion and intellect and you need to learn to let each of these things at least have an equal say and i say your intellect should probably edge out emotion because our emotions can make us do some very stupid things i've known this for a long time about me me and my saving people thing you know that's all emotion and no intellect right there so that for me is something that I am slowly learning how to gravitate away from. And it's a slow process, but it is a work in progress, and I'm getting better at it. These people were not very good at it when they started this church. Another thing that I found interesting though was, and I think I've talked about this before also, where once I was done with the Episcopal church, I still had this need to be in church. So Liam and I started going to a local Unitarian Universalist church or they called it Unitarian Universalist society. I think they like to keep the word church out of it. But in that setting, I found it real interesting that you had people from all across the spiritual spectrum right. all along this, this, this vast thing called spirituality. And there were some that weren't spiritual. They were just hardline atheists. And in this kind of a setting, that kind of diversity worked Yes, there was a lot of cohesion at the uu church that i attended briefly i just wasn't getting a whole lot out of it right. so after a while it just became less of a priority to get up for church and more of a priority to sleep in yeah. but there was nothing wrong with this church and the oh. thing that i noticed about it was that there was this cohesion some of those people had been going there for ages and things always seem to be on an even keel, even when they lost their minister and they had to deal with months and months of interim clergy. It was mostly one person, but there were a couple that made their way in and out. And I think that it worked because the concepts of differences and diversity are understood in a Unitarian Universalist setting. And it is a quote unquote religious philosophy, but it's a very loosely plotted one. That leaves a whole lot of room for humanism to happen. Right. It's basically a humanist movement. Mm-hmm. So it leaves the door wide open for you to believe whatever you want without judgment. So in that kind of a setting, I mean, these people are together every week and they have this broad and vast difference in what they believe. But because there isn't a deity at the epicenter of what they do, it works because they're not forcing a God on anybody. They're allowing everyone to believe what they want to believe. And I think that is why you, you, or at least this church, I haven't been in every last one of them, but this particular one, I do believe that it was that philosophy that kept things on an even keel. The other thing that we have to keep in mind about the Tristias community is that before these people decided to start a church together and spend every Sunday together. They were only seeing each other maybe once a month at a sequela. They would go through a weekend and then everyone would disperse and go back to their home churches. So they didn't have to deal with those differences because they were never together long enough. And it's kind of like getting into a marriage that you're not ready for. Mm -hmm. Now you learn things about the other people in that relationship and you start seeing things that you don't like and hearing things that you don't like and that's when the troubles really start to creep in. So with all of this in mind, I promised that we were going to talk about, you know, different ways to steer your attention and feel like you still have that sense of community and to literally and truly build a new community structure within your own life and with the things that you do and the people that you hang around with. Church isn't necessary. And here are a couple of things that you can and should be thinking about. So if you are an ex-evangelical or you are on the fence about this, and one of the things that really bothers you is the loss of community, let me explain just some of the benefits of doing civic and community work and service from the standpoint of an ex-evangelical. The motivation to serve people as opposed to serving God is key here, and it'll give you a clearer perspective on other people's needs as well as the importance of meeting those needs when we can and also doing it without any thought of reward. I think that that's very important that we learn that lesson out of this. You stand to gain a clearer understanding of the concept of bearing one another's burdens and not just on a spiritual level. And I know that verse actually is about intercessory prayer, but the concept has far more concrete and tangible application when it's viewed in practical and humanist terms. So what are some of the outgrowths of shifting your motivation for doing some of these things well there are quite a few you'll start understanding that community isn't something that can only be found in church and you've probably been conditioned to believe that that's so because they want you there and they want you there all the time so they bring you to a place where you're afraid to not have that anymore and i know a lot of people stay in this long after they stop believing all the doctrine. There are people that stay in because they don't want to lose that foothold. Being part of something, being part of a community, having friends, and they go through the motions for years because they don't want to lose that. And it's not necessary. And the more you start shifting your focus away from what God wants and what people need, then you start seeing a whole new perspective and definition of community growing in your head. You'll also learn how an actually healthy community functions when you take God out of the equation and just deal with a secular organization or group or meetup or whatever. And you'll see personal value in the things that you bring to the table as part of that community. You'll start getting more comfortable with the idea of being proud of yourself without having to give God the glory for everything. You're the one doing the work. You're the one making the effort, yes, you deserve to feel proud and you deserve to feel accomplished and you deserve to let it be a little bit about you because you're doing something that a lot of other people out there aren't willing to do or don't have the time to do or whatever the excuse is for not. You're there and that commands respect. You should be thanked and you should be proud of the work that you're doing whenever you do something selfless for someone else. That's all you. That has nothing to do with a God, okay? It's not God's will that you do this. You see a need, and you decide that you're capable of filling that need, and you fill it, and that's all you need to focus on, and it's you doing the work, not Christ living through you and doing it through you. It's you doing that work. It's you being a part of that community and contributing something to it, you not this God that wants you to decrease so he can increase. You'll also start reinforcing those senses of empathy and compassion that are already awake in you because if this is something that you're even considering, then those things are awake in you right now. And it's important that they stay awake. They were there long before the exclusionary nature of evangelical Christianity ever had a chance to snuff it out. And the fact that it's still there and the fact that you think along these lines and that you still want to help and serve and love people is significant because this religion does a very, very good job of crushing that part of you and eradicating it in favor of this whole hate is love and love is hate philosophy that they love to tout and call themselves pious if you were able to escape that with your sense of empathy intact, then do something good with it. Do something worthwhile. Do something for someone else because that's what's going to make you happy. That's the thing that's going to make you happy is doing for other people. So do for other people. Be around other people for the express purpose of being around other people, not because there's an event or anything, not because someone is telling you that you should be in church 18 times a week, just because this is something that you enjoy. You enjoy the people that are around you and it doesn't have to go any further than that. There doesn't have to be any other reason than that. You'll start seeing everything wrong with how they approach charity and serving the local community and you will be motivated to do better. You'll start thinking about the way that your church insists on indoctrinating someone before they'll help them. If somebody needs help and they just need help, then you should be comfortable with the idea of just helping them without any thought of reward. Right. It should just be a thing that you are allowed to do. This is a big one for me, and I think that it's something that a lot of ex-evangelicals and people coming out of that religion really need to work on. And that is that you'll like yourself more. When you start looking at the things that you now associate with church on a more humanist level, you'll like yourself more and you're likely to find more people being drawn to you and wanting to spend time with you and make community with you as well. And I mean, it's kind of a Pollyanna way of looking at it. It doesn't always work out that way, but in a majority of cases, positivity is infectious and enthusiasm is infectious and being someplace because you want to be there versus you have to be there so that you don't go to hell yeah it makes a huge huge difference because at that point you also have friends outside of church and you're starting to develop your own healthy social community without a prayer group without the women's ministry event without the promise keepers rally just people Yeah, and a common like or interest or purpose or whatever it is. And again, it doesn't have to go any further than that. No God required. So I started brainstorming just a little bit about some of the alternatives, you know, thinking in terms of what I used to do with VN and Tres Dias and all of that, and the number of meals that I showed up to cook and serve and all of that, mm. and the other things that I did as part of my greater Christian walk, a lot of it having to do with music. I started thinking, okay, well, what about if you like serving a community, if you like serving meals and putting good food in front of people, why not work at a food kitchen or a homeless shelter and volunteer there? Because that's where the need is. It's not like you shouldn't want to be around people in an ecumenical or religious sort of setting. I'm not saying that this is a bad choice to make because serving someone for the purpose of serving them is always a good thing. But the God aspect of it does have a tendency to taint our motivations. So, what's the real motivation here? If it's to serve people, it's better done in a secular setting. Same thing with music you know I love making music for people and I love the applause I'm sorry I'm, oh, yeah. I'm up there and I'm displaying my talent I deserve to feel good when people applaud yeah. and that to me is a major rush when I play something that somebody likes and they start cheering because it's a song that they like and I'm actually doing it pretty well. They express their appreciation and it does boost my ego and there is nothing wrong with that unless you become one of these prima donnas that now you let the, uh, the attention go to your head. For me, I've always loved the idea of making music for the purpose of making music. And even when I was in the setting of being the worship leader or being in the worship band. It never made sense to me why I had to just defer all of that to God and not keep any of it for myself. It made no sense because if you want people to keep doing these things as part of your community, then there has to be motivation for them too. It can't just be about God and yeah, whatever you were there, thanks for being the meat puppet. That's not what it's about. You have real talents and you're using them and you deserve to be recognized for that. It's that simple. And there are plenty, you know, we were talking about choirs. Guess what? There's plenty of organized music groups out there in a non-COVID world that you can be involved with. And these things will come back, you know, because of when we're recording this, we kind of have to mention that. This is not something that you're going to necessarily want to run out and do in January of 2021. But if you're listening to this in March of 2024, there are probably opportunities, you know? So definitely look into what those opportunities are and run with them. You know, we were talking about this when I was putting the show notes together about how when all this craziness is over, I would love to take a ride to Toronto. Yeah, And I love Toronto to begin with. I've been there a few times. We've been there a few times and it's a great city. It's got a great vibe and they also have this thing called choir choir choir. Yeah. That I think you can be part of without being part of their group. You can just go to whatever the venue is that they're at and sing. Yeah. And if you've never heard of them, pop them up on YouTube. Just put in choir 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 and you're going to see the types of things that they do and the types of songs that they do and oh my god the energy yeah. is amazing in these videos, and I can only imagine what it would have to be like to be in the midst of that and take part in that. It's yeah. it's not around here. You got to go to Toronto for it, but it's a really, really neat concept and one that I would love to be able to explore at some point. But you know what? There's a lot that's closer to home too. If you love music, there are all kinds of opportunities, especially if you play an instrument, especially if you play guitar, there are usually opportunities for you to get involved in jam sessions and other little informal gatherings where you're just making music for the sake of making music and making some people around you happy at the same time. We talked about sequela's and how the Tres Dias community tries to get together every month. Well, that's kind of had a damper put on it with COVID too, but in a non-COVID world, there are more than enough alternatives to that too. Meetup.com is a great site. Find people with like interests and just get together and have fun with them. Imagine that without any agenda, without praying to start your meeting, without any of the dogma that creeps in, you just sort of show up and do stuff together. Like before social media took over the world Mm. where it was just the norm that you would actually go and seek out people. And that was your social network was whoever you knocked on their door and they were actually home. Well, that's the way that it was as kids. But, you know, the adults had their playtime too. And things have changed quite a bit over time. And I'm not sure that all of it's been for the better. I I am sure that all of it has not been for the better. But you have options. You don't need church to be able to do even some of the things that you did at church. Our church had the Taekwondo. Yeah, They had all kinds of things. They had craft days that were put on by the women's ministry, uh, men's prayer breakfast. And then th- there were all kinds of things that they would do to to get us together and try and call it community. But again, the underlying religious aspect of it really does put a damper on it. Just get together and have fun for fun's sake. It's not going to hurt. I promise you. It's something that you're going to enjoy. Just getting together with like-minded people and doing stuff that you enjoy. I thought about, well, what about Word of Life, since I mentioned that at the beginning? Well, I mean, that's, that's a no-brainer. Any camp that's actually a camp will do, and not one where it's setting you up for a lifetime of control and indoctrination, which is really what the agenda was at mm-hmm. Word of Life. I don't think that it was particularly intentioned. I think everybody who was there, I've said this many times on the show, I think that everyone who was there did what they did with good intentions, so they deserve an honorable mention here, too. The campers, the staff at Word of Life, every single year that I went there, they were phenomenal. And I never got anything but love from these people. But the agenda, the underlying agenda, that whether it was intentioned or just an outgrowth of that kind of thought, it was there. And the whole point of it was to get you used to the idea of control and get you used to the idea of you not being good enough and you need, you need this, you need the God behind this. So any camp that actually just lets you have camp would be a good alternative to that. And then I started thinking about my teen years a little bit more in the youth group and, and the things that I used to enjoy about youth group. Well, you know what, there are secular youth clubs that do a lot of the same things. Boys and girls clubs in different areas, they're run different ways and have varying qualities of leadership. But in a lot of communities, the boys and girls clubs have a good presence and they have a lot of good activities. Local community centers, there are still plenty of those. There are family meetups, even on meetup.com. There are things that you can do as families. If the whole family aspect of church is something that you feel like you would have a hard time letting go of, Well, then find other groups of families that you can get together and just do stuff with. They're out there. And then, of course, there's the normal teenage stuff that I feel like I largely missed out on because I spent so much time in church. Let your kids, especially if you're coming out of this, especially if you're coming out of this, we've said it before, let your kids be kids and especially as teenagers because teenagers do not have to become rebellious. Although I think a healthy dose of rebellion and self-discovery is good in the teenage world. In in a teenager's life, I think that it's actually quite good. But there's also a lot to be said for reinforcing the notion of family and doing things as a family. So do that. Let them be them and do their thing when they feel like it. And don't worry that it's not tied to something with a church. Now, For the adults, especially single adults or couples, partners, however you want to frame this, there are so many alternatives and some that churches even try to hijack. I talked about our Taekwondo class and all the rest, but you know what? Don't go to a men's prayer breakfast. Go kayaking with your buddies. Go fishing with your buddies. Go bowling. Do whatever it is that you want to do and do the male bonding thing without the spiritual baggage. Male bonding does not does not have to include prayers and sermons. It just has to include a bunch of guys who like spending time together. And that's it. Camping trips don't have to fall under the cover of Royal Rangers. Just go camping. You know, do whatever it is that is going to make you feel good about you and the time that you don't have to spend at work. You know what I mean? Just do what's you. Instead of attending church work days, this is another one for the guys predominantly, but you know, women do women do do the stuff too. But instead of attending church work days, how about helping out a friend or neighbor that needs home repairs and can't afford to pay expensive contractors or do it all themselves? Do be aware of local laws and regulations, obviously, before you just start helping someone rewire their house. But things like painting, general repairs, you got to put up a new garage door or something like that. These are usually things that can be done on a DIY level. And I think that it's a more worthy thing to give your time to. Those who have expertise in the trades, and that's both men and women, can do a lot more to improve somebody's life this way than they ever will working on a church building. And that's the same for women's groups that are designed to keep the vibe of submission and being good Christian wives as their focal points. Ladies, do the girls night out thing. Enjoy being in an atmosphere where you don't always have to be on your best behavior and uphold this image that everyone else in the group will approve of every now and then you got to cut loose with the girls too. And you'll feel much better about you if you get out and just be you once in a while too. And more than once in a while, as often as you wish, as often as you can, you should be around people who make you feel good about you. For the parents out there, instead of chaperoning youth group trips, why not volunteer at say your local community center? Why not help schools and civic groups raise money for things that will result in real community enhancements and not just overseeing the indoctrination of the young. Instead of cooking for the church potluck, why not work in that soup kitchen that we talked about a few minutes ago? Work in some kind of secular charity that helps people for the purpose of helping people and use those skills to fill needs in people's lives. Yeah. As many positive things as I can say about Tres Dias, there was and is no need for it. But there are a lot of people out there who are hungry, and a lot of shelters and a lot of soup kitchens that are always starving for good people to come in and work, especially people who have a talent for preparing food and can prepare food for a large number of people at once. If that's you, then your talents are gonna be way better served there than serving on a trustee's weekend. And you know, it's kinda heartbreaking even saying that because I put so much of myself into that and I do see the value of it on a human level. But again, as soon as you make God part of the mix, it diminishes the effectiveness and the necessity of it by so much that it's not even worth considering anymore. But this stuff is. The stuff that makes a real difference in people's lives is. Most importantly, And here's another big bone of contention of mine. Instead of paying tithes into a system that ruins lives at a virtually immeasurable ratio to the ones it enhances, research secular charities that are out there actually doing good in society or in the communities that they serve. Because that's another very useful and practical way that you can become part of a community. Even if you don't have a whole lot of time to interact as part of the community, you can support your community through good secular charities that are doing good honest, decent and worthwhile work in your community. And I highly recommend that if you're in this mode of giving and you don't know what you're going to do with that 10%, well, for starters, I urge you not to give 10% of your income to anyone. But if you are a giver and you want to do a little bit of good once in a while, then there are also far better places to send that money than any church. You can be a cheerful giver and actually make that sacrifice meaningful. So keep that in mind. So just a couple of quick thoughts that I jotted down here to kind of put a period on all of this. There are people out there who, to quote Rich Mullins, give faith hands and feet. And I do commend and admire the ones who are out there serving others while still managing to hold on to their senses of empathy in the midst of this turmoil that is evangelical Christianity. The ability to express a genuine love and care for fellow human beings despite what you're taught from the pulpit is definitely admirable you are among a rare breed if that's you you really are and you deserve to be recognized but you also deserve to understand and know that you don't need church to be able to do the things that you're doing right now but like i've said before on this show it would be so much better if people were to figure out that faith is not an essential element to simply being a good person and doing good things. You don't need a reason to do good for other people. You don't need a reason to want to be around like-minded people and people that you can enjoy spending time with. You don't need empty promises or rewards of things that are going to happen after you die so that you are motivated to do these things. Charity is, in fact, its own reward. Loving people for love's sake is a far better proposition, in my opinion, than loving them because a book tells you to. The people we talked about tonight, I think, saw beyond spiritual mandates in the things that they did, but they still used their faith as their motivation. They need motivations that are more tangible and more meaningful than simply what would Jesus do. Whatever their reasons though, they did, the ones that touched my life, they did enrich it in a number of ways. They also motivated me to stay in for much longer than I wanted to. So there is that end of it. There are, as they say, two sides to every story, even the ones that inspire and uplift. There's the downside to all of that too. And the reasons and motivations that people had for doing the things that they did. I still think they were good things. I just think that there were plenty of better ways that they could have showed love to people than in the context of all of that. It would be so much better if we were all to take our cues from the actions and attitudes of people who know what love is, but also figure out a way to apply those principles in a context that eliminates the negatives. Negatives like reinforcing people's faith in a religion that, at its core, does everything in its power to teach people to be the polar opposite of loving, caring, and empathetic. And when we figure out that charity and love work better when they're taken out of the pews and used to touch people's lives who need help and support and not indoctrination, our actions, our motivations, and our senses of purpose start steering us into more positive places. Most importantly, it helps us know ourselves and like ourselves more. And that kind of thinking is a recipe for getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages, as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode, are listed in the show notes, available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.